Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to look at how 5G service is expanding across the U.S. Plus, we'll do a 2020 look ahead for the asset management business. But first, we want to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, the awesome of retail. It was a really fascinating, busy week. So joining us to help break it down, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Poonam Goyal. Um, I don't want to throw such a broad question at you, but I'm genuinely interested as to who was the best, who was the worst. So the best was Walmart, Target, TJX, value. Value seemed to do really well so far in this earnings season. And then in terms of the worst, I'd say the department stores. I mean, they continue to struggle while some had beats in earnings, some had misses. Consistently, top line was weak. And that's where the concern is. They're having trouble drawing traffic. They're having trouble generating sales. And now we have holiday upon us where they're all encouraged that they will do better. But the question is, will they really do better? So when we think about the department stores, it's been such a beleaguered sector. I know the uh, Macy's has been the weakest performing stock in the S&P 500 this year, which is just extraordinary. Kohl's had some you know, unsteady numbers as well. Is there any play there for the good old department store, U.S. department store story? You know, the department store that I think is just a good department store. And there, there are still a few. The question is, how big do they need to be? And can they shrink and still exist? And I think the story is more of shrinking and still exist. I'd say Nordstrom is a good department store. They do have a problem right now in their full line sales. And um, we'll see what happens there. Kohl's is also good in that its presence is off mall, which is more attractive than on mall. Mm-hmm. For Macy's, their growth 150 stores, which is half of the fleet, is actually performing well and comping well. So it's what do you do with the rest of them? They've known this for a long time. Like we've known that there's been this transition for years. So I'm wondering like, why is it taking so long? Like what, what's what's happening there? I, I think it takes time where you have to remember these department stores are large stores and there's a lot of them. There used to be on average probably eight, 900 of them across each company. And now we're probably going more towards 500 with the exception of Kohl's, which has 1,100 stores. 
It's a big store to fix. There's a lot of product. There's a lot of national label. There's a lot of private label. And people want experiences. So how do you bring in the right brands, the right experiences, and test and iterate to roll it out? And it's expensive. So Walmart and Target, good numbers. What I was really interested in in those numbers were their e-commerce sales were really strong, 30 40% mm-hmm. growth. So it seems like one part or you know several parts of the retail landscape have really figured out this Amazon thing. Yeah, I mean, e-commerce sales were a bright spot for Walmart and Target both. And there's a lot of opportunity there. None of their e-commerce businesses are as penetrated as a department store. So department stores are probably around 25 to 30% of their business today is online for the bulk of them. For Walmart and Target, it's, I believe, still under 10%. Oh, wow. So they really have an opportunity to grow in that? Yes. So what are they doing that's working so well that other, I mean, I thought Kohl's was supposed to have this partner with Amazon. So they come in, you could return your package, then you buy a lot of stuff. It seemed to help them in the previous quarter. So explain. Yes. They talk about the Amazon partnership and they say it's working. It's driving in a younger shopper, a new shopper. It's driving conversion, but it's not enough. Um, They talked about September being weak because of cold weather and it just doesn't cut it because they had so many new things happen in this quarter and sales were still weak. They launched the partnership with Nine West. They launched Property Brothers and Home. So they had, and, and a lot more, and still sales were weak. So I think it's just a question of, do you have too much in your stores? Are your stores too big? Can they shrink even more of them into a smaller box that are already kind of small relative to the other ones? Or do they too need to downsize a little? All right, so we're coming into the thick of the holiday buying season. And I know the day after Thanksgiving, you'll be out there in the malls kind of doing your store checks. Uh, What's kind of the expectation for the holiday season this year? So expectations are that sales will rise by mid-single digits, which is aggressive for the department stores. So I wouldn't say that department stores will see those increases. But on average, holidays expected to be robust at a mid-single digit gain. And that's in line with kind of where we were last year. Uh, The thing that I'll be looking for is just traffic at the stores, right? So Black Friday is not what it used to be. People aren't looking necessarily to only go out on Black Friday and kind of do the majority of their holiday shopping. They're going out on Thanksgiving Day, but more, they're shopping online. Most of the deals available for Black Friday in-store are also available online. So people are just spreading out and they're shopping where they can, when they can. Cyber Monday is probably more important. And that's when there are a lot of deals online. So we expect more shopping to be done then. What I love the stat is when Alibaba had their singles day is that basically, I guess, Alibaba made more in almost 24 hours than all the retailers wind up making in terms of sales for five (laughs) days around Thanksgiving. Like to just put all that into perspective. Yeah. I mean, look, people are shopping online. They're shopping on their mobile. It's uh, mobile sales are expected to grow anywhere to like 60% of total online retail sales, the last number I read. And that's pretty astonishing. So any call on the consumer here, given this, we had this week of a lot of retailers uh, reporting, you know, anybody go out on a limb and say, this is as good as it gets, or it's starting to slow down or anything like that? The consumer is strong. Every single retailer that reported had nothing to say about the consumer consumer potentially weakening. You know, and, and that goes back to unemployment, right? Unemployment is low. People are employed. They're happy. They're spending. And when we think of the consumer, we think of Walmart first because yep. that's really where the value play is. And there was no reason to think that the consumer has slowed based on the results we saw at 
Walmart and Target. Are, are we seeing the average price of what someone's spending when they go in move around? No, not at all, actually. That's People are still spending. They're just spending in different places. Really great to get your perspective. Poonam Goyle, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst, joining us on Retail. Well, it's that time of the year to look ahead to next year. Let's take a look at the asset management business Key trends for 2020 to do that. We welcome our good friend, Allison Williams. She's a senior analyst covering all things financial for Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. So as I think about the asset management business, I think fee pressure and I think consolidation. What are some of the key things you're looking for for 2020? Fee pressure has really been the major challenge for the industry over the last several years. And I think sort of the newer thing, you know, over the last maybe two years has been, you know, the cost side of things coming through. And so fees have been coming down for a long time. Uh, Eric Belchunas calls it the Vanguard effect um, for obvious reasons. And the newer thing, I think, is just having to spend on compliance, having to spend on technology. And that's so now they're sort of getting squeezed from both sides. And you also mentioned M&A. And I think that's really sort of the driver now of M&A. We've been talking about M&A forever yep. since, <laughs> since you and I have been around. And, you know, because it makes sense. You look at asset, the industry, it's an industry where scale um, provides benefit. And now with all these costs and technology pressures, you can have more to spend. You can leverage it off a bigger base. Um, but the one thing we talk about M&A is we need deals, but we need the right deals. Keeping in mind that with asset managers, you know, performance is the product. The process is key. Culture is really important to that. And that um, can really be a killer for deals. So what are the right deals? So the right deals, uh, we, we had a uh, sort of a sizable deal come through recently, Invesco and Oppenheimer Funds. I think uh, some people were critical about that deal because they felt, you know, U.S. retail is the business that's perhaps under the most pressure from some of the fee issues that we discussed and also uh, some of the cost challenges. But I think what Invesco has showed us is that, you know, first of all, it's still a, a high margin, a good business. So there's pressures, but it's still sort of the biggest uh, opportunity out there. And if you can cut costs and improve the profitability of that business, right? So if you're going to be in it, at least make it more profitable. And actually, they came through better than expected, bigger savings than expected, sooner than expected. So that has worked. You know, when a deal doesn't work is, you know, you have a manager with outflows, you, you know, put those together, you think there's going to be distribution synergies, and there's not. And a lot of times it just makes the outflow situation worse. And so I think sometimes when people look at different managers and say, oh, you know, this one needs to do something or that one needs to do something, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, The other thing that we talk about is the cycle, right? So there's been a huge lift to asset managers from the cycle, and that's asset prices, right? So if we think about market gains have really been the majority of growth. And even though we've had outflows, we've had this huge lift from the market. So that's a positive, um, but obviously there's risk late cycle. But the other part of that is that active management can be cyclical. Um, you know, we have a bunch of different charts that that show that. And so to the extent that we do get a turn, is there more opportunity for asset managers to outperform? Um, the other uh, pressure for U.S. managers has been the fact that these overseas markets, you know, S&P has been the, the huge yep. be- uh, beneficiary. That's really where you can buy cheap beta. The fact that emerging markets have trailed, it's not good just mathematically for your business. Um, it hasn't been good for the managers. It hasn't been good for flows. If we get a cycle turn, that could be a positive. Talk to us a little bit about fund flows. As I think about 
is everything going to ETFs or are these active managers still getting fund inflows? Probably the most depressing thing uh, for active management is that even funds that outperform are, are finding it tough because of this broad fee pressure. And so it's not just uh, it's not just that people are going to ETFs. It's that within every product, mm. people are going to the cheapest. So within ETFs, you know, the vast majority, 90 percent of flows are going to, you know, those very marginal basis point funds. Uh, within hedge funds, we're seeing, you know, a uh, decade low uh, fee pressure there. And then, um, you know, in mutual funds further, we're, we're seeing really fees driving it. I would say, you know, the one positive light is that uh, there are some places where you're getting pricing power. So D.E. Shaw's is the example I used yep. in hedge fund land. You know, great performance, uh, 3 and 30. Yeah, I saw they're raising it from <laughs> 3 yeah. and 30, I mean. Yeah, and, they, so, and they're raising it from 2 and a half and 25. Right. So, yeah. they had, so a long time ago, they were higher. They came down. And now they're saying, you know what, we're at capacity. We can we can uh, charge for that private equity, um, which is you know almost scary. The inflows that they're getting, it is right? the last bastion. I always say private equity seems to me the last bastion of outsized returns, both for investors Correct. and the people managing it. <laughs> but they're so big now. I know, and they're so. I mean, they're not really private equity anymore. So I just think it's a. Is it just a matter of time? But I, mean, that I think I think this is going to be the one of the most interesting things over the next decade, right? Because first of all, the amounts of money that they're raising, they're big, but they are raising money. They have pricing power. When you look at the fee growth that these managers are yeah. expecting, Paul Goldberg, who covers these, and he shows this chart. I mean, these are like, wait, do we? Is this the same industry? And in fact, even though we talk about the massive amounts of money going into passive, the the revenue is still tiny, whereas alternative assets have been growing and the revenue is really dwarfing all of the other sources. So mm. um, getting back to what I think is going to be interesting over the next decade is companies are staying private longer because they have all this um, funding companies are going private. Um, there are all these different charts about the number of public companies, how that's been shrinking. So, you know, how does this shake out in the next, you know, you know, maybe it's not a financial crisis, maybe it's just an economic crisis, but how does it shake out when there's a need for liquidity? Um, you know, I think that's where some interesting things might happen. In terms of M&A and asset managers, you, you can do cross-border. Janice Henderson, for example, there's no rule regulatory reasons why you, you can't you can although you're you're pointing to one of the ones that you know uh merged and yep. still ha is is struggling with some issues but cross-border i think is is something that really makes a lot of sense uh dws group by the way we're always talking about some of the challenges that the deutsche, deutsche bank, bank faced yep. but this is something mm -hmm. they did right and it's working this you know deutsche bank uh spun off uh, this asset manager Monday that was also a spinning off from European banks, hmm. um, and these have worked. And part of that is uh, you know them buying smaller deals. Uh, Sarah Mammon, who covers that one for us in in Europe, the asset manager has said she thinks they're going to buy into Asia. They're going to do a transformational yep. deal, okay. um, and there's a lot of opportunity hop, uh, cropping up there. Well, well, that also dovetails with if we wind up seeing the move consistent into value, aka EM, aka Europe, then that that's the way to expand, right? I mean, is that going to be continuing? That. That's really where, um, and specifically China, right? That's another opportunity that that's looked great on paper for a long period of time, but because of reform, maybe gaining some traction. I think that's going to be one to watch, and where we could get uh, some more deals. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence analysts 
Allison Williams. So it's been a really good performer this year. You've seen a ton of issuance, and that is Muniland. But we have some tax changes coming that could really alter uh, the whole landscape. Joining us now to break it down is Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Eric Kazatsky. Eric, if you put tax and Muni in the same sentence, half the people are going to be like, I got to go take a nap. But this is actually going to be something <laughs> that we have to pay attention to this year. Talk to me about why. The shipping world for municipals has really changed since the 2017 tax reform. And what they did is it did two things. One, it limited deductions for individual taxpayers. And two, it lowered overall tax rates. So it really has just funneled all this interest into the municipal bond uh, world that really wasn't there before because it's one of the last vestiges of the tax haven. And I think, you know, once a full tax cycle went through um, after 2018, people met with their tax professionals. They actually realized that there was only one place to, you know, be protected from taxes, and that was municipal bonds. So what you've seen is we have, you know, really demand that's um, the highest as it's been on a year-to-date basis uh, since 2014. And we've seen issuance that's actually as high um, as, you know, 2010 when we had the Build America bond program. So it's really a perfect storm of all this issuance and all this demand coming at the same time um, on the heels of a lower rate environment, which has helped performance. So when I think about, the, again, the municipal bond market, I've been an active investor with New Jersey. I do it for one reason, one reason only, and that's the tax deductibility. Talk to me about what's driving demand for the taxable side of the municipal market. It's really a supply story. Um, and what's happened is part of tax reform, it eliminated the ability of municipal bond issuers to advance refund their debt. So we really think of it like this. If you were a homeowner, you didn't have the ability to refinance your mortgage anymore. That's what they took away from the bond market. So they made the municipal bond market smaller by not letting issuers refinance their debt in advance of their call date. Um, And so basically taxable issuance is a way for issuers to get around that. You know, the absolute low rates um, on the taxable side via treasuries have actually made it economically feasible for issuers to refinance their debt outside of the tax-exempt market. And that actually does a few things. One, it brings in a whole universe of buyers who typically wouldn't look at muni bonds because they don't care about the exemption. And two, it actually creates more liquidity because taxable bonds tend to have larger issuance sizes. So it's really beneficial for issuers that they get more exposure in the marketplace. So I feel like the need for this is like a unicorn. And I mean that in that like you want an asset that's going to give you consistent yield that's going to be safe and that's not going to be at any kind of risk. It's like, well, well, I want to go on vacation for a year and win the lottery. But like that's not going to happen. So what's the inherent risk that some who are buying all this may be missing? Obviously, the risk is that if you buy a taxable bond, uh, you're not going to be able to get the tax exemption. Um, but, you know, and everybody in municipal world land, like, they look at ratios. They look at, you know, what the percentage is of the treasury versus immunity and vice versa and makes the decision whether one is better to buy than the other, you know, taxable or tax exempt. And, you know, there was a time during the summer when the ratios were so low that it didn't make sense to buy immunity. It made sense to buy taxables. It made sense to buy treasury. So I think this is really a continuation from that. So, Eric, give us a sense of this taxable municipal market. I think it's new for a lot of people. Give us a sense of the size and, you know, is this thing growing? So if you look at the high water mark, again, which came after the Build America bond program um, 2010, there were $140 billion of um, taxable immunities issued. Right now, um, if you look at the market, we're about $53 billion uh, year-to-date as far as taxable immunity issuance. And there's another $778 billion on the calendar uh, for the rest of the year. Um, But that's not the whole market in its entirety because, you know, because they're muni bonds, they tend to be complicated. There's actually a segment of the market that comes under uh, corporate QCIPs. So if you add in that segment, 
you know, total market for the year is actually about $70 billion, which is an 84% increase over last year. Pretty significant. Talk to me a little bit about the different kinds of issuers and the duration of these assets. Like, what's the maturity that we're seeing most on? You know, I, I wish I could say with certainty that duration was just in the five-year bucket or the 10-year bucket, but it really tends to be all over the place. Because you have to keep in mind that, you know, beauty bonds are being refunded that had, you know, various stages of their life cycle left. Um, you know, so the durations can really be all over the place. So there really is no clean answer for that. As far as the buyer base goes, you know, it really is disparate. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of interest come from overseas via foreign insurance companies, but even a lot of domestic funds are, you know, seeing a lot of interest from um, buyers as far as wanting to get exposure to the taxable markets because, again, where ratios were during the summer. Eric, what kind of entities are issuing these bonds? Are these kind of like mom and pop little town USA or are they kind of big infrastructure projects? Absolutely not. These tend to be larger issuers. And what's interesting about what's happened this year is that you have a lot of first-time issuers to the taxable market. So it's really showing a shift in that issuance behavior. For instance, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport was one of the top issuers of taxable bonds this year. And those are bonds that were used to refund old tax-exempt issues. So if you look over the past five years, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, they issued $724 million of exempts, and all of the taxable issuance that they've ever done came in this year. And about half of the top 50 borrowers same story. First time in the marketplace for taxable units. Ah, uh, thank you, Fed. I guess this <laughs> yes. is an overwhelming combo. Uh, all right, really great to catch up with you. Thank you very much, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Eric Kazatsky. European banks not only have to deal with negative rates, they also have to deal with regulation and a lot of pressure uh, on their balance sheets. But maybe, maybe there's a shining light here. Philip Richards is our senior industry analyst for banks over in Europe. He joins us now. Uh, hey, Phil, so first of all, how what kind of regulations do EU banks have to deal with that may be different or similar to US? The pressure on the banks has been very intense, certainly over the last 10 years since the financial crisis. And certainly the regulators here have been much more pressure in terms of ensuring that the banks are holding enough capital against their, their, their loans and their risky assets. Um, whereas in the US, um, it's much more about encouraging the bank to start lending again and growing. Whereas on the, say on the European side, is much more strict about you know, making sure they are putting enough capital in place, holding enough capital on their balance sheets. So there's been a huge pressure on the European banks to build up their capital ratios um, over, say, over that 10-year period. And we certainly think that that phase is now coming towards an end. Um, and the reason we see that is because the politi- political will is now to actually not so much make the banks safer, but also to actually get them growing again. We've seen the European economy continues to struggle. And so the new rules they put in place are not, um, don't actually fully enforce until 2027, which gives banks plenty of time to actually build up capital, but at the same time actually start lending again. So I thought that U.S. regulations were a lot harder and stricter in terms of, say, capital buffers and stuff than European banks. Is that not true? Well, they have certainly have been stricter in the past, and there's almost been a case that the European banks have been very much, well, the European regulators have been catching up with that. Mm. So in terms of what's changing for the banks, it's actually the European banks which have had the most pressure recently. Um, but if you look at, say, average capital ratios today, excluding the investment banks, the average ratio for the top 10 um, US banks is about 11% versus about 13% for the huh. European banks. So let's say that it eases or we kind of just like stop where we are here or we get a little wiggle room or stuff. Like what's going to be the order of priority for some of these banks? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a case of suddenly all these banks have got all this capital and they're going to start massively returning it rapidly to shareholders. Um, in Europe, you know, the economies are much weaker. Um, there's a lot of pressure in terms of money laundering regulations, very weak growth, and actually a lot of costs in terms of setting up their digital platforms. So the earnings headwinds, and with negative rates as well, are very clear. So it's much more a case of a gradual, um, less pressure on the banks in terms of building capital so they can look to sort of dividend payouts again. Mm. Um, also, um, share buybacks. We've heard it from DNB, one of the Nordic banks, talking about that. That's becoming back on the agenda. Also, uh, more a case of bolt-on M&A deals rather than the, the large scale at this stage. Um, which banks, either kind of banks or specifically, uh, which banks are going to benefit the most from something like this? Um, in the short term, it probably is the Nordic banks. They are already closest. They've got the highest ratios today. Mm-hmm. Um, and although, although they will be hit by the new regulation, just because they, their economies are doing much stronger, um, typically they have got um, higher um, interest rates in that area versus the mainland Europe. So they're the ones that basically are doing stronger thus far. And therefore, you know, and with higher profitability, you expect them to, to gain the most. Is this a good idea? <laughs> like, is this right to do? Will it actually spur lending at some point? Or are we just going to see uh, capital return to shareholders? And does this place anyone in a precarious position when we have a downturn? Yeah, so I don't think it is going to be a case of a massive sudden return to shareholders. I mean, the flip side is if you keep forcing the banks to hold capital and not lend to the, the environment, then you're never going to get that economy going again. And you've seen in the ECB doing a whole raft of different measures, cutting interest rates into negative territory, they're what called the, the long-term refinancing operations. They're doing all they can to get the banks to lend and the economy growing. But if, on the other hand, you're forcing banks to, to not lend and hold more capital, then you, you're basically one's offsetting the other. So this is a case of getting the banks to gradually um, pick up their, their risk appetite and boost lending, but it's very much on, on, on margin. So it's not going to be any big increase in dividend payouts, certainly over the next few years. But that would imply that the issue with these banks is the supply, is that they don't have the flexibility to lend out more when there's an argument to be made that it's actually just demand, that even if they were able to, it's not like people are beating down their door. I think that's absolutely fair, um, but it's a bit of a quid pro quo because if the economy is so weak and sluggish, um, then also the, you're right, you can have that lack of demand as well. So indeed, it's both sides, but at least you can get the banks at least looking and being more willing to lend. Certainly at the margin, that should help the banks. Really great to chat with you, uh, Phil Richards. Uh, he is the bank's senior industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Well, one of the most compelling stories in tech and telecom is the advent of 5G wireless service. To break it down for us, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence analyst John Butler. John covers all things telecom for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, John, just scale out kind of what is 5G and where are we kind of in the process of rolling that out? So 5G is the next generation, the next leap forward from from 4G LTE, which we all have today. And um it's the next in a series of generational upgrades that are typically defined by the download speeds, how quickly you can ask a network for data and then get that data on your phone. And 5G is going to represent anywhere from 10 to 100 times uh, faster than wow. 4G LTE. So we're talking high data rates. There are other characteristics which mean a lot more to service providers and and business customers like low latency, for example. Uh, Unlike 4G, the carriers are actually going to be able to lop off slices of their network and dedicate it to Hmm. corporate clients that uh, may want a private network, for Hmm. example. But for you and me, it really is all about speed. And I think we're going to be 10 to 100 times faster when all is said and done here. And for me, it means I'm definitely going to have to buy myself a new phone. Finally, it's only been like six years. And that's Um, a big part of the story, by the way, is going to be the phone upgrade cycle 
that begins next year. So when you say 5G, though, are we talking spectrum? Are you talking wires and pipes? And what, what is it? It's called an air interface technology in the industry. And really what it is, it's the software around transmitting data and voice over the air. Basically, what carriers require on their end is what's called a point-to-multipoint radio or a base station that can reach out and manage a number of cell phone calls simultaneously. So if you want to think of it in a very simple sense, it's like two ends of a walkie-talkie. One of them is the base station, and the other one is the cell phone in your hand. And so that base station will establish that conversation and keep that session, as they call it, going as long as you need it. John, where are we in the process of this 5G rollout? I'm starting to see some ads you know, in the media. I'm just not sure where we are in terms of rollout. It is slow going, actually. It's, it's moving along a little more slowly than I thought it would um, this year. I think next year, so we're, we're currently, if you look at numbers from the experts, they're all predicting around half a million 5G subs in the U.S. by year end. Uh, we'll call them early, early adopters in mm -hmm. many ways. Um, and I think it'll be available in about 40 cities by year end. We're currently oh, wow. at 36, and those are in limited sections of those cities. So a lot of carriers aren't able to offer a full footprint across most markets yet. Um, by next year, though, I think we'll be at around four, maybe even five million subs. And 2021 is going to be the year I think we'll see much broader adoption across the U.S. This is crazy expensive, right? To build out? No, not really. really? Ericsson, believe but it or not. But I feel like Verizon's been... always like, well, it's so expensive. It's costly. I mean, you're you're literally, for, if you're a carrier, you have to go to every cell phone tower. You have to pull out the old base station and put in a new one in most cases, not in every case. And you often need guys to climb the tower and put up new antennas to install new spectrum that supports 5G. So it can get costly. But again, it's sort of a measured rollout here, and a lot of spending that's currently going on today towards upgrading our 4G is now going to get redirected to 5G. So expensive, maybe. Incrementally expensive? I'm not so sure on hmm. that. Give us, a, since you also follow the handset market, give us a sense of how that's going to roll out. Like, when are we going to start getting 5G handsets so the handsets are starting to hit the market now so samsung for example has a version of the s10 that is a 5g phone um, most of the 5g handsets on the market now are quite pricey i think we'll begin to get a broader selection i know we'll get a broader selection next year and what's interesting to me is if you look back at when 4g was introduced in 2010 it really didn't take off until Apple introduced the iPhone 5 in 2012. That was the first hmm. big use case for 4G. And it actually, for all the or for AT&T, which was, had exclusivity at the time, 4G just took off. And um, I have a sense we're going to see the same this time around. And Apple is rumored to be rolling out a 5G iPhone in September. But we're hearing a lot out of the supplier community, the chip guys that supply all the guts of the iPhone to Apple, already talking about how they're ramping up their 5G production for Apple. So 
I think there's truth to the rumor, and that's why I really expect 2021 to be prime time for um, for deployment of 5G here in the States. In terms of the service providers, who wins? I think the winners, I'll name two. I think T-Mobile and AT&T are going to be the first two carriers with a nationwide footprint. Uh, Verizon is really constrained in terms of the airwaves they have that they're using for 5G. The spectrum that they purchased for 5G is um, is very distance limited. Mm-hmm. Um, they're high frequencies. They don't travel very far. And so poor Verizon is sort of going neighborhood by neighborhood in a lot of the cities they're in now and deploying 5G. But when you're talking a nationwide rollout, that's really going to be a hindrance for them. So I think AT&T and T-Mobile are the early winners, Mm -hmm. and hopefully T-Mobile gets to buy Sprint. All right. Thanks so much, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst John Butler. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.